What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. What do you think are the most important ingredients for a young person to learn and thrive? While we've hopefully come a long way since reading, writing and arithmetic top the list, we wonder how many of you would say that connection, empathy and a sense of agency matter most when it comes to educating young people to step out into the world to be their best selves. In this conversation on Human Cogs, we meet the extraordinary Lael Stone, a parenting educator, speaker for the Resilience Project and TEDx, author of best-selling book, Raising Resilient and Compassionate Children, and also the founder of Woodline Primary, an independent school which opened in February 2021 with a novel modern curriculum based on emotional awareness and a key focus on educating the whole child so they learn to deeply know themselves so they can better navigate the world around them. Lael shares her incredible and inspiring journey through parenthood, trauma, self-discovery and healing and how she's utilised her story and teachings to help parents and students alike. She also shares tips on how to manage the mother load to ensure you are prioritising your own self-care and setting boundaries while also creating space for your kids to step into who they are fully. And if you think this chat's only about parenting and the failings of the education system, well, you'd be wrong. There are so many brilliant tips and human insights for how each of us can manage our own experiences of trauma, understand and own our stories and learn to truly listen instead of trying to fix. Here's our chat with Lael. Lael, thank you for joining us today on the Human Cogs podcast. We're looking forward to our conversation with you. I wanted to kick off with a question. In your work and certainly on your Instagram that I had a good look at recently, you use these terms in balance and out of balance to describe children. Can you explain what you mean by those terms and how parents can help their children and themselves stay in balance? Mm, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, firstly. And look, the imbalance, out of balance thing, I think, applies to all of us, not just beautiful children. I think it applies to everyone. So I often talk about in the context of children, when we see that our kids are in balance is when you can hear them singing in their bedroom or, you know, they come out and they want to tell you things and they're really engaged with you and they go up to their sibling and they're like, hey, do you want to hang out together? And and then you might ask them, you know, darling, can you please put the washing away? And they're like, yeah, no worries. And, you know, it's, it's those moments where you feel like you're just winning at parenting because there's this beautiful connection and your kids are feeling pretty good. Okay, can I, sorry, can I sorry. Yeah, we got interrupt now um i have never in my life gone to my kids and said could you please do the laundry and got anything other than expletives <laughs> certainly not the sound of cinderella singing like doves it's just what you're <laughs> okay well let me just say maybe she lives in a parallel are... universe <laughs> no, no no i will say within that look you know when it comes to maybe asking our kids to do things sometimes there's going to be pushback but you know when your kids in balance right because you can you hear them feeling happy they're laughing 
thing. They're chatting. They're, you know, they're excited about something. They're feeling pretty good in their beings, right? So that's where I often say we can see kids are imbalanced. When we see our kids out of balance, it's when they walk into the room, you know, and they kind of like, you know, elbow their sister in the head as they walk by or they, you know, they grumble at the dog and you ask them to do something and they push back really hard on what you're doing. And, and whatever you say, whatever you do, you know, they're reading in a different way and it just everything feels hard. So when I talk about kids being out of balance, which is the same as us as humans, you know, I'm always leaning into, okay, well, what's the reason why they're out of balance? Because our external behavior, there's always something going on internally that is reflecting in that external behavior. So my invitation always to parents is the first thing we want to do when we are seeing our kids out of balance is to start to be curious and go, I wonder what's going on behind the behavior here, like what's happening for them. Now, sometimes it's just they're tired. Sometimes it's they're really hungry. Sometimes they've had really bad day at school and they're feeling a lot of pressure and and just in that moment everything feels big but sometimes there's some other big stresses and anxieties and worries and traumas and that kind of stuff that's sitting underneath the surface and and my kind of explanation of imbalance and out of balance is how do we meet our kids in those moments because it's our job as that adult to bring enough safety to a child to be able to help them shift what's going on so they can be back in balance because as humans we all want to be in balance we all feel better when we're in balance but a lot of the time life circumstances not getting our needs met stresses traumas all those kind of things are throwing us out of balance and particularly for our beautiful children they are still learning how to navigate to find their way back into this center. How can we do that if we are not in balance ourselves? Wow, that's a big, beautiful, juicy question, isn't it? It's very hard to do that because, and I think this is for me, a lot of my work around parenting is so much about how do we take care of our needs to be in our centre as much as possible. So, you know, over the years of parenting my kiddos, you know, who are adults now, you know, and and I worked with this kind of style of parenting for a long time when I was teaching it and also just trying to practice on my kids and see how it would all roll and unfold. What I really came back to is that my job as a parent is to be what I call as spacious as possible, which meant that I have to take care of my needs and I have to look at where my stress sits and where I am in this bigger picture so that when my kids do walk into the room, I can attune to them. I'm centered enough or I'm calm enough to be able to attune to them to go, hey, where are they in this whole spectrum of imbalance and out of balance? And what I learned very quickly, which I'm sure you guys can absolutely attest to, is that when my stress is high, when I'm not meeting my needs, when I haven't had enough time for myself, I am going to be reactive. I am going to project my crap onto them. And then, of course, what do they do? They're like, I don't want to hold your stuff. So they push it back. And then that's when we have yelling and we have disconnection and nobody's winning in the family. So I think many, many, many years ago, I learned, whoa, the key to this family working in a bit of harmony comes back to me meeting my needs first because as the center point and I'll, and I'll you know just and it's kind of true for a lot of women particularly as the mothers in the family that hold the mental load and kind of orchestrate and do everything if we're not doing well often nobody's doing well mm. right because we're not responding to our kids in the way that they need perhaps we're not having the deeper connections that we want and then they're feeling that so they're pushing back in their behavior everyone's always responding to their environment so you know and and I learned this the hard way because I had the most appalling 
self-care and boundaries for many years as a parent. It took probably about the first eight or nine years of really hating parenting and just feeling resentful as a mother all the time because I didn't really have boundaries and and that self-care that everybody just, that, that was just reflected back to me all the time. And it wasn't until I realized, oh my God, if I do not meet my needs, no one's going to get their needs met here. And so I had to change a whole lot of things. And that included changing a whole lot of belief systems around around how to, you know, take care of myself and that I was worthy of having that care and and all the kind of crappy imprints I had around, you know, women just give, give, give and put yourself last and be a martyr and all that kind of rubbish that so much of us have, have taken on board. You know, it was really important to really delve into that and change that. And I also was looking at my daughters particularly going, well, uh, who are they going to be in the world? They're going to be women based on me. And so mm. what am I teaching them around this? It's the so whole it was a imprinting, really big... like do as I do, not as I say yeah, kind of totally. vibe. What were some of the Think, I mean, as I listen to you, uh, I, I feel that mother load deeply uh, a lot. You know, I have four children and and certainly um, have done a lot of thinking and reading about the um, that burden of care, really, um, mm-hmm. that a lot of women carry and it's either inherited, it imprinted from our own family mm-hmm. or, or societal expectations that we will be this, you know, always available, always absorbing what's going on in the family. As I listen to you, I wonder... As you talk about that, what did you change exactly when you say you moved toward your own self-care? And also, was that a shared shift in your family with your partner, if you had one at the time? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've I've been with my husband for 25 years now, so we've we've journeyed all the the messy bits together. Uh, it, It really was, I think, firstly, leaning into what do I make this mean around me taking care of myself? So I grew up in a family of women that are all doers. You know, if you're not doing four things at once, you're lazy. So I come from a family of amazing dynamic women. But really for me, what I what I had as a story was that you don't sit down and just look out the window and rest. You know, you must be doing something. So you're busy all the time and you're achieving. Now that felt really confronting learning to stop doing that because, of course, the story came up for me of like, if I just sit down on the couch and look out the window, then um, I'm lazy. And then I'm like, oh God, and now my mother's going to judge me and my mother-in-law is going to judge me. And, you know, all the stories that we have that go on inside our head. And it actually took me getting sick in order to stop. So, you know, many years ago, I developed PTSD from, you know, my third birth journey that I had. So, it didn't kick in until about three years after she was born. But it was one of those moments where I remember I'd had, you know, I knew I had trauma, but I just kind of kept running from it and, and just kept being really, really busy. So, it kind of, I thought it wouldn't catch up to me. But of course, as trauma does, it caught up to me and it absolutely floored me. It took me from being a person who used to be out there on stage talking, running workshops, doing all that stuff to, I found it hard to even drop my kids off at school. And all of a sudden I had anxiety. I was in this really post-traumatic stress phase. And and really, I think what it did is it took me back to the basics of, well, who are you and you need to heal this trauma and what needs to change in order for this to happen. And so... I think it was, it was, I don't think it was the be- the best thing that ever happened to me because it actually made me reassess my relationship to vulnerability, to healing, to trauma and to boundaries and to my self-care. Some of the fundamental things that started to change and shift was even the basics of cleaning. Like why was that always on me to be doing everything? So we started to implement 
what we called a shakedown, which was every day, you know, at, at a certain time we'd put our music and for 15 minutes everybody would tidy up something together. We were doing it together. We wanted to teach our kids about taking care of our house, that it wasn't just my job to do that. Even basic things, maybe going into too much information, but to the point where I was like every time I'd bleed once a month and I was exhausted, I was still doing the same things that I was doing. I remember so clearly one day my husband walked into the kitchen and I'm making dinner and he goes to me, hey, baby, you okay? And I'm like, God, I feel like my uterus is falling out. And he's like, oh, okay. And then he just walked out and I thought, what the hell? Like, this is not cool. You know, I am I am visibly exhausted and I'm still doing and this doesn't feel good. So we started to implement a whole shift in the family where I said to the kids, you know, once a month I have the lowest amount of energy in my body and I need to be taken care of for that day or two. So, and what we did, we did it in a way that um, I used to have these red candles on the mantelpiece and I'd light <laughs> the red candles just to say, that's what's going on for me right now. And you know what was the best part of this is my son, my son is the one that took it on board more than anyone. Mm. And he would go, mum's bleeding. So if one of my girls would come in and go, mum, can I have something? He'd be like, mum needs to rest. I'll help you. Then he'd come in and go, can I make you a cup of tea? You know, do you want a hot pack? He was all about how do I take care of you um, so then you can take care of us. So we, st I started to really model what it looked like to have good boundaries but also to take care of my own needs so that all of my children started to see it. And, you know, look, it was tricky at first because I was so used to being the martyr and so used to giving to everyone else. And then it, I clearly began to see if I do not take care of me, no one is going to win here. And so it was an adjustment and it was a change. But I think once I started doing it, I became fierce about my boundaries and fierce about my self-care. And it is non-negotiable now. It's just not. And and I realised, you know, now having done it for a really, really long time, it's changed such a massive pattern in our family but it is also for myself and my own needs really valuing it that's what's been modeled to my daughters which they do the same thing now which i'm you know deeply deeply happy about have you got any candles in your collection to represent menopause <laughs> yeah they're black <laughs> just have them burning constantly that's yeah and also giving off a toxic smoke that goes up and burns a hole in the ozone layer as well um I was just thinking maybe we need to get a big red flag to put on the front of our house uh, with multiple <laughs> yes. women in here and then just say to my husband, do not step over the threshold yeah. when the red flag <laughs> is out and all, all that candle's burning. So you, you've just mentioned a few things. I, I mean, I know for sure that often in the work that we do, we have been touched in some way personally when we become really passionate about an issue. When something really matters to us, we've lived it in some shape or form. So tell us about what your career path was like before this traumatic birth experience that you describe with your youngest and also before you became uh, passionate about <laughs> boundaries and parenting and shakedowns? Mm -hmm. Well, I look, many, many, many years ago, I think when I finished secondary school and had that, you know, what am I going to be and do in the world? I was full of, I don't want to do what everyone else does, so I want to do it differently. So I went and travelled for a few years and finally came back to Australia and started my first company when I was 20. I actually opened up a children's entertainment company. So this was a really long time ago. This is when the wiggles were beginning, right? And um, I knew even back then I didn't want to work for anyone. I wanted to be my own boss. So, you know, bought a mobile phone, got a business card, started my first business. And 
And that grew over the years to, um, you know, I had maybe 10 employees and we used to put on big shows and birthday parties. I'm on so many home videos, I'm sure, of people, <laughs> fairies and mermaids come to their house to entertain their kids. Um, God, I'd probably die if I saw some of them. Anyway, I, I worked in entertainment for a long time because I loved performing and I also thought, well, I'm probably not thick-skinned enough to go to auditions and get rejected, so why don't I just create my own work? So I did. Uh, and that did really, really well. And then I had children and then all of a sudden I became, oh, I don't want to entertain other people's kids when I've got to just entertain my own. So I actually closed the business because when I had my second baby, I had a really beautiful positive birth experience. And my first birth was a traumatic one. The second birth was a really healing, beautiful experience that I had at home. And that that experience changed my life. And I remember after giving birth to Indy, just going, I want to help other women have really positive experiences. I knew what it was like to have trauma and I wanted to be able to um, support them to have positive experience because I knew how much of an impact it has on stepping into that mothering space when you have had trauma. So I then trained to become a doula, a childbirth educator. I um, started teaching calm birth created a beautiful online birth program that, you know, is still out there today and then found myself naturally drawn to working with women that had had trauma and started doing a lot of postnatal trauma counselling with women. So I did a lot of that for those first kind of early years of of my children. And, and you know, it was not lost on me, particularly when I had a really tricky experience with my third baby that, you know, I'd worked in birth, I knew a lot of this stuff, but it kind of took me to a deeper level of understanding and um, healing, I think, that I needed for myself. And then that, that work from there then moved on to parenting and then the parenting kind of stepped into, as I guess my kids grew into the teenage years, I started working more with teenagers and then that eventually moved on to building my own school and those kind of things. Yeah, like it, like it is for all of us when it goes from birth to parenting to building your own school because most, <laughs> most of us have done that. So tell us about this school. <laughs> this is a phenomenal story. Woodline mm. Primary School. Mm. It's described as a pioneering school that opened only in February 2021. It's pretty mm. recent. Tell us how Woodline uh, came to be. Uh, well, I always love to say when I share this story that it was never my intention to build school if you had said to me seven or eight years ago you build a school I'd be like you're absolutely crazy I don't even like education like I you know I, my secondary years at school were filled with a lot of angst because I felt like the system was so broken and so I had lots of probably wounds and trauma around education so it was never something I set out to do it really came about because one of my clients who had been seeing um, for a few years um, one of her children was starting school and she would come to these sessions going gosh I just hate how they put his name on the board and he can't move when he wants to and, you know, he's not allowed to eat when he wants to eat. And and she was just like, God, is this really what school is? And I was like, um, yeah, unfortunately it is. And she said to me, why isn't there a school that's based around all the things that you've taught me? You know, why why isn't there a school that puts that emotional well-being at the centre? And I'm like, well, I'm sure there's different aspects of it that it exists, but I, I don't see it out there as a schooling option. And so she is a really wealthy woman and she just said to me, well, why don't we build a school? And, of course, I laughed and said, yeah, of course, you know, <laughs> 
can do that and then realized that she was very serious and she was and she kept saying no I'll fund it you build the school that you think should exist for children and so you know you don't often get held in front of you an offer like this that says hey here's something that you could do that could make an impact you know for the world and so of course I fought against it for months because I did that whole I can't build this I'm not smart enough I don't know anything don't even like education all those kind of things and she was really insistent and finally I just thought well you know what who am I not to do it it just takes one person with an idea and enough belief and vision to change something so why not me so uh, Mel and I just then you know I spent nearly three years getting building the school so I touched every policy I, I would go and visit lots of different schools we got some consultants on board to help us it was I spoke to every single parent that was interested in the school I would hold information nights I was really trying to not even convince people but really show people an example of how it could be done differently and I was coming to the school through that really strong trauma-informed lens with the philosophy that children need to feel safe in order to learn so what does emotional safety look like well emotional safety looks like choice and autonomy it looks like being able to sit on the floor or on the couch if you want it looks like being able to take your shoes off if you want it looks like being able to eat when you want and go to the toilet when you want it looks like being able to move your body when you need to move your body it also looks like really fostering children's natural love of learning what are you interested in how do you learn best how can we keep you connected to the earth and to nature because that has such a fundamental impact on children and their spirit how do we help children to emotionally express themselves and be connected to who they are so all the things that i think i'd battled with my kids at school you know of, of you know having to be good boys and good girls all day being shut down not learning in the way that they learned best all of those things really impacted me when i looked at how we can build a new education uh, philosophy or understanding that is about supporting the whole child. So you've said that the system's broken. If we think about the system of education itself, what's been codified is a mass step, industrialised model of education, which is the mass model means we actually can't have differentiated learning to the level at which you're meeting individual kids' needs. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have the ratio of teachers in the classroom. And, and anyway, it, it's clear the system's really under a lot of stress because of that. So what you're proposing is to fix that system. It's a complete overhaul of that ed education model itself. Um, what are the considerations then around ratios of teachers and, and the, the overhaul then of the whole learning experience itself? Yeah. Well, that is the big question, right? Because we have so many people who come to our school, educators going, can we, how can we do it like how you do it? And I'm like, well, it doesn't, how we do it at Woodline won't work in the mainstream system because we have 16 kids uh, max in a class, right? We have one, we call our teacher's guides. We have one main guide, but we also have an assistant guide in the classroom who is there to just tune into the kids emotionally so that if kids are having a hard time, they can take them out to the basketball court and shoot some hoops or have a swing or jump on the trampoline or have a chat and listen to their feelings. So we have really those beautiful low um, ratios of, of teachers and students. We are a fee-paying school, which means parents have to be able to afford it to send their kids there because we have to pay for those adults to be there. Uh, so, you know, our what we're doing at Woodline is not uh, let this is what should be across the board, right? And because it wouldn't work in our bigger system, but I think there's many things that can work in the bigger system. And I guess what COVID taught us a lot is really around how outdated I think a lot of our education system is, our curriculum, all that kind of stuff, and how we're still teaching for jobs that perhaps don't even really exist in the future. And there's a whole lot of jobs 
jobs that aren't, we don't even know that are going to exist, that are going to be there. And what we probably need is to develop children who are beautiful, critical thinkers, who can think outside the box, who um, have a really strong emotional intelligence being connected to who they are. So, you know, as at our school, we have to, you know, we have to tick all the boxes that every other school does. We use the Australian curriculum. We have to abide by all the standards that everything does. I mean, it's not easy to open a school. It's really tricky because there is so much governance and hoops you have to jump through. And what we have done is we've taken what what you know the Australian standard is and then we've gone well how could we do it differently how can we still meet those needs but also find other ways to learn and connect in with children now I know that um, Woodline you can't just kind of pick it up and replicate it everywhere because it's about the people and it's about you know I think what we've learned over these these years of of what works but I do know that a lot of what we stand for can be implemented in our systems. And those basic things are things like connection. They are about slowing down. They are about trying to find ways to actually meet the child with who they are. And I know that is really, really tricky when you've got one teacher and 28 kids in a classroom, it's almost impossible. But as I say to many, many educators, you cannot underestimate the importance of connection, of taking a few extra minutes to connect in with a child, look them in the eye you remember something about who they are you know children when they feel safe they feel connected they're more open to learning they're more open to cooperating all those kind of things there are ways that we can work with kids without being punitive because I think that's one of the biggest challenges is that we still use shame to get kids to conform and to do stuff and again of course I understand that when you've got that many children in a classroom well you feel like you're powerless as the teacher so what power do you have well you you can power over them but I think if we began to change change that completely and looked at it through the lens of a trauma-informed space, then we would realise how damaging that is for our children and then we could start to shift it. So, I, I do not sit here at, at any stage going, you know, this needs to be changed everywhere. I know that it is a huge shift to turn around how our education system is and the stresses that are on it and I feel so deeply for educators because I think they are doing an incredible job in a really broken system and they're not supported in the way they need to. But that for me, again, is another huge piece that needs to change is we have to support our teachers like I knew right from the beginning in building this school if I do not support the principal and and our executive team in the way emotionally that they need then they're not going to be able to um, support their staff and then the staff are not going to be able to turn up for the kids in the way they need so Mm. we have to look at where the support structures in this we have to look at how do we help our educators feel seen and heard and be vulnerable so that they can move their stuff so they don't you know project that onto the kids like there's so much we actually can do in a system that is broken but I think a lot of it comes back to looking at it from a different angle and I I do think that's probably why Woodline has worked in some ways because I am not a teacher I, I haven't come through that education system that saw it through that lens I came from a completely different angle and I think then working with educators we went hey what if we made this the focus and and what I did know is that when children feel good they do better. When children feel good, they're open to learning. When children feel seen, they are more willing to cooperate and to connect. So, if we put that at the centre, then what is possible mm. from there? So, the curriculum is very crowded, we know. Um, there's general capabilities, et cetera, but, but the actual curriculum itself, one of the issues is to get through all the basics of numeracy, literacy, et cetera, et cetera, um, is actually really hard. Um, and 
where you're introducing enterprise skills or, or soft skills, I don't like that term for them, but where we think about critical thinking, problem solving, emotional intelligence, etc. how are you measuring those? So how do you measure progression, which unfortunately is one of the benchmarks of, of education is that we can actually measure progress over time. How do you do that with something like emotional intelligence? That's the tricky part, right, is so much of it around emotional awareness and stuff, it's really hard to measure. And that's one of the conversations we have all the time. So anecdotally, we see it because we see the confidence in the children. We hear it from the parents talking about how these kids are expressing themselves in new ways. We see how happy they are. We see that there's the kids are really happy to come to school. Like our school refusal is really, really low because they want to come. They actually don't want to leave at the end of the day, right, which is good evidence. So it's really hard, I think, to track that emotional intelligence. And it's something that we talk about all the time. We know that it's working, but how do we measure that? And what's interesting is, and, and we are not a school that really promotes our academic you know, excellence because we're not about that. We're about the whole child and we do believe that our academics come from that. And so, you know, the latest NAPLAN results come out and NAPLAN's a whole other conversation, which we don't really buy into. But this actually felt like some beautiful evidence that we, you know, we were ranked like sixth in our region for a school that had only been open for a few years and NAPLAN results really did reflect some beautiful growth and learning in our kids. Now, we really debated about whether we share that or not because we're not about the academic results. But for me, I felt like it was really important because I know that many would look at what we're doing in guys to some hippie school and they just climb trees and, you know, and they just all talk about their feelings. It's actually not what we're about. We are really about learning, but we are about creating ways of learning. And so, it felt a really beautiful thing for us to see that reflected in these results that people like to measure because we're all about measurement in our culture, aren't we? Of, you know, this is good and that's bad. That that is one measure of what we see with um, how well our kids are doing. And so, you know, I, I absolutely share that we are in our infancy still. You know, we're three years into this journey and we are still learning and growing. And one of the things I think we do really well is that we are so open to learning, to feedback, to shifting, to go what works, what doesn't, all those kind of things. And that's so much got to do with our principles and our amazing executive team who are so willing to take risks, to jump in, to learn, to see how we can do it differently, always coming back with that lens of the whole child. How do we help these children feel connected to their spirit, to help them know how they learn best, to help them express themselves fully? How can we look through that lens constantly in what we're doing? Mm. It's a um, wood, Woodline is, is it prep to grade six? Yeah. Yeah. How do you think some of some of what you're describing that kind of educational template might sit in senior years, in high school years and beyond yeah. and beyond? Yeah. Well, I mean, we get asked all the time, are we building a high school? And at the moment, the answer is no. <laughs> so just, you know, secondary school is a whole other thing. Uh, and I think part of me is still recovering from just building <laughs> the first one. So we will see if that comes in the future. Uh, I think... It actually applies beautifully because, again, it comes back to agency and it comes back to feeling connected. So, it's really interesting. My youngest daughter, who's in year 10, and, you know, she's she's 
Sarah's seen Woodline build right from the very beginning. She's come to the school a lot. She's, you know, even volunteered there, all those kind of things. And she often says to me, why can't there be a secondary school that's like this? And I say to her, well, what is it that you would want? And she said, I just want the teachers to connect with me. I want to be able to move my body if I need to. I want to be able to go outside because I learn better when it's quiet. I want to be able to, again, just have a bit more of that choice and autonomy around what she is learning, what she feels passionate about. Because she even says to me, she goes, I will give 150% if I'm into something. She said, but when I'm learning about science, which I don't care about and don't like, she's like, I just don't even want to be there. And I'm like, yeah. And I think that that is a big problem again with what we're expecting, particularly our teenagers to do is to learn a lot of stuff that doesn't light them up. Now, again, what is the answer to that? Well, the answer is we still have to explore a whole lot of things to find out what it is that lights us up and what we are interested in. But, you know, I don't know the answer to it, but I do feel that it could be done in a whole other way where, again, we could come back to put the student in the middle of this conversation and say, how do we help them thrive? Mm -hmm. How do we help them be the best version of themselves? I mean, you guys know you've raised many teenagers between you. You know how tricky it is. You know their search for autonomy and for, um, you know, being an individual and all those kind of things. And, again, I look at our schooling system that tries to say, hey, let's squish you all into this box. You all have to wear the same things. You all have to look the same way. You all have to do what we're telling you to do so that you come out the other side and get good grades and then we'll we'll mark whether you're worthy enough or not. Yeah. Right? It's and kind of crazy when you when you reduce it to that it's it's madness. You're saying the school's prepped to year six. Have you had a graduating cohort come out of year six? No, that's this year. Right. That's our first and year. so what are your thoughts then around how those those kids will transition into presumably some of them into the mainstream schooling system beyond their time at Woodline? Well, really, uh, my goal is this when we started the school is what do I want for the children when they finish grade six at our school? And really what I wanted was them to have a strong sense of self, for them to know how they learn best. Do they learn best with their hands, with moving their body, with speaking? Like how do they learn? What kind of learners are they? Are they able to articulate themselves and ask for support and and communicate in good ways, you know, and are they able to own their story so understand when something's going on for them, they can tune into themselves, what do I need, how do I move my feelings? Like that was my kind of goal at the end, right, of this is what we want for our kids. And so then we're looking at all those beautiful things that these children are developing that are really important tools for them to navigate moving out into the world because the world isn't like Woodline. It's not. I know that, right? The world is kind of going to have teachers that are going to yell at you and there is going to be consequences for not pulling your socks up or things like that. And again, depending on whether they interact with that or not, but I really want them to be able to be able to be discerning around what's projected onto them and what's not, knowing, having a strong sense of self, even amongst where we are in the bigger picture of the world. That's the goal there. So, particularly this year six cohort, you know, we're doing a really strong rites of passage this year for them around this next transition phase for them moving into that beautiful adolescence phase and how to equip them with those basic tools to learn how to advocate for themselves, to learn how to keep tuning into who they are. You know, that's that's what we're working with to be able to send them off into the world. And again, you know, I feel like with Woodline, you know, half the time I'm joking, it feels like a giant experiment that we're doing, even though I do know in my soul 
and heart and we're seeing the evidence there of how powerful it is. So I don't know exactly and I think it probably won't be until we have our first, you know, little preppies who travel all the way through the school to see how that looks. But already in the few years that we've done, you know, I I see the power of when I talk to these kids at school, when I see how lit up they are about learning, when I see that light in them, I'm like, we are doing something right here. Mm. I can see it. And and we're talking, of course, today about education, both primary and secondary school, but everything we're talking about now applies as much to beyond secondary school, to tertiary mm. education and to the workplaces that, that so many of us, that all of us work in some kind of workplace. And I know for sure that connection and agency are two of the most potent ingredients in the workplace. And the research tells us that in spades. And I speak with a lot of, I do a lot of um, presenting in in organisations and I often speak about connection and agency. So it's no surprise, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to hear you talk about that in a school setting, but it piques my interest to think, well, what are your thoughts on how we might apply some of these vital concepts beyond our schooling years? Well, I think I come back to this and I work with a lot of adults around their own traumas. And so people often come to me about parenting, you know, but it actually never is ends up being about their kids. It's always about their story and what's turning up for them. And I, and I think it really stems back to this, that most of us were not given those beautiful tools around connection and awareness to our own stories from when we were little. You know, most of us received imprints that when you feel something, when you're angry, you need to shut it down. Or when you're angry, it's not appropriate. When you're sad, you need to just put a smile on your face. Or, you know, most of us grew up in environments where we weren't encouraged to actually feel. And so, we learn from a really, really young age to numb those feelings, to learn to disassociate, to check out, to be so busy that we don't have to feel, or to become so dependent on our phones or drinking wine or eating ice cream or whatever it is, right? Or we store those feelings inside and, you know, that turns into anger. And then, you know, whenever we feel out of control, whenever we feel threatened, you know, then that's what leads the story. So, you know, that's that's most of humankind, I would say, because we grew up in this behaviorism paradigm that says we reward you when you're good and when you're bad, we take our energy away from you, we disconnect from you. Now, that that is imprinted in most adults that I work with these days. And so part of, I think, changing this story, and particularly this is why I think I'm really passionate about parenting, is if we can get adults to own their own story, do their work on their deeper wounds, then they're less likely to respond and react to their kids in these ways. And we're more likely to meet our children in their big feelings, hold space for them, and guide and educate them around being emotionally aware. So, you know, one of the things that we see often in the workplace is that we get really reactive to people when they say something to us. And our inner narrative is like, oh, my God, are they judging me? Am I good enough? God, I'm really not smart. I don't deserve to be in this job. I'm an imposter. You know, that thread comes through. Or somebody says something, you know, to us and that doesn't land in a good way, then we've got a whole other narrative that goes on with that. You know, we are always making things mean things that we make them mean, right? And so much of it is being able to be curious as to what's going on for me in this moment? What am I feeling here? What am I making this mean in this in this situation? Now, that's not just the workplace. That is in our intimate relationships. That is in parenting. That is with our siblings. It's through every part of our life. We are constantly often looking through the lens of our trauma and our wounded stories, not from the embodied adult. And I think, you know, where I come back to working with children is that if we can help parents understand this and do their own work and then 
be able to meet children with these um with these concepts and understanding, then they are going to grow up to be adults who are able to own their stories, who don't project their crap onto other people and who are able to do that inner process work, which gives them a greater emotional intelligence, which of course we know equates to greater success in their life. Mm -hmm. It's not about how much money you earn or how successful you are, how many degrees you've got. It's about can we interact in relationships? Do we know how to communicate? Can we be with ourselves? Can we be human actually in our best versions of ourselves as humans? In in your book, Lael, you talk about... um, Raising Resilient and Compassionate Children is your book. And you do talk about the importance of teaching children, explicitly teaching them these these abilities to be self-aware and manage emotion. What are some tips for people listening? Um, if you've got kids and, and parents listening, what are some of the tips that they could use to help their, their kids or teenagers or young adults with some of these things? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is creating safe spaces for them to feel. So, so often when our kids are upset, our first reaction as adults is to move into stopping or fixing it, which is usually because it's uncomfortable for us to see them uncomfortable. So, so often what we do is we see a child, you know, whether they're upset because they're four years of age and someone took their toy or, you know, a 14-year-old because they didn't get picked in the basketball team, we instantly want to move into that fixing and telling them it's going to be all right because it feels uncomfortable for us watching our child hurt. And we have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. It is so vital that we can sit next to our child and go, hey, this is really tough and I'm really sorry that this happened for you but I'm here and and I'm going to sit beside you and let out how you're feeling instead of moving into the fix or the judgment around how they're reacting. You know, if your four-year-old's upset because someone took their toy, one of our default reactions is, it's, we'll just go get another toy, right? Or it's fine, you can have it back in a minute instead of actually taking a deep breath and going, oh, you're really upset, mate. I hear you, tell me all about it. Because sometimes it's actually not just about that toy, it's about a whole lot of other things that are going on and the toy is the catalyst for the feelings, right? We know this with teenagers all the time. It's usually never about you asking them to take the dog for a walk. There's usually a whole lot of other stuff that's sitting behind that. So I think our first step is to meet their feelings with compassion and with a calmness that says, hey, all of you's welcome here. You know, I can see you're really angry. I can hold that, right? And it doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries and we don't have limits. We absolutely have limits around, you know, I'm, I'm not willing for you to talk to your sister that way or it's not okay to throw that thing at the wall. You know, we absolutely have those boundaries, but we want to be continuously looking behind the behavior to be curious as to the why of what's going on. So one of my, I guess the point I'm getting to is one of the most important pieces firstly is that we model what empathy and compassion looks like because when a child is upset, and they're met with an adult who is calm, who is holding that space and whose energy says, hey, this is not too big for me, then what happens is those beautiful mirror neurons happen in that child's brain where they begin to go, ah, this is what empathy feels like. This is what compassion feels like. And, hey, I'm being met in my feelings and this feels safe enough for me to then feel. So then they let out their anger and hopefully it moves into those tears and then we connect and, and every, you know, they've reset themselves. And then you might have a conversation and say, hey, what was going on for you? Hmm. And they might be like, everyone got picked in the basketball team and I didn't and I don't feel good enough. And, and we sit and we listen some more and, you know, we don't move into the fix again. But we just we turn up and be that safe container for them to process what they need to feel. So I think that's one of the most key 
important pieces, I think, of parenting is learning to listen well. Mm. Is not listening to fix, but listening just to hear them, to say, hey, I'm your safe place to come and there's nothing that's too big for me. Such powerful advice, again, not just for children, not just for parents, but for all humans walking the planet. Um, Lael, my mum actually was a parenting uh, educator back in the day. She taught something called parent effectiveness training. Are you familiar with PET? I am. Yes. Um, So I grew up as a little person with a lot of the principles um, that you're describing because mum was very, I think, in tune and aware of really being the importance of listening and validating feelings and not solving and not fixing. But of course, no parent gets it right all the time. And uh, in fact, my mother wrote an article, she used to do a lot of a lot of writing around parenting issues in the media and she wrote an article about simultaneous orgasms when I was in year 12 in The Age. Um, So I'm just curious how your children, how your children respond sometimes. Do you ever get the eye roll, yes, mum, we know, and another eye statement and um, let us just, you know, let us just be without your parenting advice? And that's Mm. that's, that question's coming from the child of a parent educator. (laughs) Oh, it's kind of interesting. I, I love that you say that. Um, yeah, my kids have got some funny stories to tell around that. Uh, like sometimes stuff will happen and then they'll look at me and go, you can't use that in one of your talks. <laughs> okay. And I always really respect if they say that. I think if anything, I refrain a lot from offering any advice to them or anything. I really think what I've learned to do well is just listen to them and hold that space for them to work their own stuff out. I actually feel, um, and they do say this, they often feel really lucky. They, they will say this to my husband and I. We feel, we, we see what happens with our other friends. So I think they often feel really, really lucky. I am really open about being messy, you know, with them. I'm like, I make mistakes. I get scared. I've been really, both my husband and I have been really open around being vulnerable around them and messing up. So I think they know there's no perfects. And I think right from the beginning is from when they really could articulate it around about seven or eight, we always used to say to them, if you feel that we are responding to you in a way that is not from our hearts or not connected, then you have full permission to call us out on it. Mm. And they have Mm. over the years for both my husband and I, when we haven't been in our best centre and we have been, or if I've been too preachy or whatever, Mm. they'll call us out on it. And it stops you dead in your tracks because you're like, oof. That's ouch, but it's usually true. Yeah, and um, and I'll always take that on board and go yes, because you are your own beautiful human being, and just because I'm your parent doesn't necessarily know that mean that I know better than you. And, yeah, you know, we let's talk about it. How yeah. do we how do we all work with this here? So, you know, I, I, every I say to all my parents that I work with, I've messed up so many times. Everything that you, everyone's done wrong, I've so done wrong, and I think probably what has been good that I'm really proud of is I've mostly owned it. I've owned when I've messed up a lot. I've always said I'm not perfect. And um, and I think my kids really, really respect that. And mm. if anything, now they kind of hang shit on me sometimes. They'll always go, okay, parenting expert, what do you think? Yeah. And, you know, they'll joke about it a little bit, which is actually kind of beautiful. But, you know, I um, yeah, I feel like we found a really nice middle ground with it. But I think a lot of that's because I've just I don't know, I've just owned all the times I've messed up, which has been plenty. Mm. What is next? What is next for you? Woodline Senior School. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know about that. Um, I'm writing another book at the moment, which feels exciting. And, you know, I'm doing a lot of public speaking at the moment, which also feels really good. And I'm kind of just really open to see where it goes next. I feel like um, my work with kids, as in working 
around parenting is kind of finishing a little bit. Like I feel like I've been saying the same thing for a long time now and I'm actually probably more interested in working a lot more with adults and their own inner child now more than anything. So I'm kind of moving more into those spaces and actually in the corporate sector actually a bit. I'm getting asked a lot to go and talk in corporate spaces around that inner child and I often say to them, are you sure? Because <laughs> we're going to go a bit deeper. And they're like, oh, God, should we be scared? I'm like, maybe. Um, but I think it's, it's what's needed. You know, I think it's the time we are on the planet where we need to shake stuff up a bit. We've got to get real. We've got to do our own work. Because I think if we're, we want to change where stuff is at, it always comes back to doing your work, is to looking at your own shadow and doing that work in order to be able to be the best version of yourself. So mm. I think that's what's next. But I've got no idea. I'm enjoying playing the game at the moment and seeing what turns up well the world the world awaits what what you do next and you said earlier that the world isn't like woodline but hopefully it will be in time and certainly for the kids that you're impacting and all the work you're doing thank you because it sounds like it's been a hard path but wow like if you if you go hard at it um you can actually change the world or the world of some people um we always like to end our conversations uh with our guest with a final question and that is that given we know life can be messy and challenging and we can all fuck it up a bit um who do you think is doing human well oh oh my god that's a good question Mm. do you know what i'm going to say at the moment i'm going to say my son who is this beautiful 23 year old young man who's about to go and travel for about seven months with his gorgeous girlfriend, I look at him and I see how deeply connected he is to his spirit and who he is in the world. He really follows his own path. He doesn't get swayed by what other people think or what he should do. And I'm actually often in awe of him. Mm. And I think he's a really exceptional, insightful human. And I love sitting and listening to his take on the world and yeah he i really am in awe of him at the moment so Mm. um i'm gonna say him that is beautiful and uh, and then your two younger children can go into therapy when they hear that (laughs) he is the chosen one but until until they listen um or just just do a shakedown (laughs) together and just let it all go with a cleaning session maybe a candelabra (laughs) needed for that one but thank you not to minimize because that is a beautiful response for any parent to share those kind of reflections with their about their adult child and I'm lucky enough to have met your son several times and he is a beautiful human so thank you for sharing all your wisdom all your passion and all your truth with us today Mm, thank you for having me thanks so much for listening to this episode of human cogs we hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.